Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 48, Conrad's Conundrum. I apologize for the audio quality in today's episode. I've got an ear infection in my right ear, making my delivery even more lopsided than normal. I guess good old Bernard of Clairvaux had cursed me for all the unpleasant things I've said about him. Anyway, in today's episode, we examine King Conrad's options to establish his authority from a weak starting point. By a more than unexpected set of circumstances, he suddenly finds himself at the head of one of the largest armies a German ruler has fielded in a long, long time, if ever. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Carla, Amy and Rich who've already signed up. Last week we ended with Conrad achieving a somewhat precarious peace with one of his main opponents, the Duke of Saxony, Henry the Lion. He had been unable to unseat the Welfs as Dukes of Saxony after four years of war and now must accept their almost independent rule in this, the largest of the stem duchies. Conrad did, however, gain something. Henry the Lion, or more accurately his mother as his guardian, renounced the claim on the Duchy of Bavaria. And then, that same mother of Henry's marries the current Duke of Bavaria, another Henry, Jasomirgott, to seal the peace. But, as I said last week, despite the peace, Conrad is still a weak ruler. His personal possessions are modest compared to many of his great nobles, not just Henry the Lion, but also Henry Jasomirgott, the Markgraf of Austria and Duke of Bavaria, Conrad of Zeringen, and even his own brother, Duke Frederick of Swabia. He does have control of the royal estates, rights and privileges, but they have already been much diminished after centuries of donations to bishops and monasteries and the recent back and forth of the throne between Stauffer and Welf rulers. The weakness of the ruler meant that the major nobles were pursuing their incessant feuds without much interference from the king. With all the problems of documentation and biased chroniclers, it's difficult to prove that things really have gotten much worse compared to previous periods. Otto of Freising thought that these years of war and confusion were a portent of the imminent arrival of Antichrist. And indeed, the listing of the ongoing feuds just during the 1140s makes for some grim reading. If we go clockwise round the realm, starting in Lothringia, we have the prolonged feud between our friend Albero, Archbishop of Trier, and the Count of Namur over the rich abbey of St. Maximin. This went on for years and years, creating horrible bloodshed. And that even though Albero was one of Conrad's closest advisers, but neither would he heed calls for peace from his secular overlord, nor did he even bow to the decisions by his spiritual overlord, the Pope. Going round to the northwest, we have the Counts of Limburg and the Counts of Leuven fighting over the by now entirely ceremonial title of Duke of Lower Lothringia. Clockwise further to the east, there was a feud between the Archbishops of Hamburg-Bremen and the Duke of Saxony over the rich inheritance of the Counts of Stade. A princely court convened by Conrad decided in favour of the Archbishop 
but that did not stop the young Duke Henry the Lion to occupy the lands of Stade with no more than a what are you going to do about that, old man? A bit further east, Albrecht the Bear was constantly fighting with someone or other. He just could not help himself. Moving south from Saxony, we have Bavaria, where a brutal feud between the Bishop of Regensburg and the Duke Henry Jasomirgott raged for almost a decade. Despite the horror and destruction this caused, nobody really bothered to write down what they were actually fighting over. The lands around Regensburg were utterly destroyed, and as the chronicler said, not even a single church remained standing. Another parallel feud in Bavaria was between the Duke Henry Jasomirgott and Welf VI, the uncle of Henry the Lion. Welf VI had been defeated at Weinsberg, but he was still going. He now makes the case that after his nephew Henry the Lion had given up his claim on Bavaria, the duchy should now by right be his. What makes this feud particularly challenging for Conrad was that Welf VI had support from a most unexpected corner. Conrad's nephew, Frederick, son of the current Duke of Swabia, had joined him in his feud. This young man had already gained a formidable reputation for military prowess when he had captured the Count of Dachau during a battle in the Regensburg feud. Frederick, who you will hear an awful lot more about as we go along, was in a unique position. On his father's side, he was a nephew of King Conrad III. But his mother was Judith, daughter of Henry the Black, sister of Henry the Proud, and aunt of Henry the Lion. She was a wealth through and through, which made young Frederick a nephew of Wealth VI and a cousin of Henry the Lion, Conrad's most implacable adversaries. Frederick joined his maternal uncle, Wealth VI, in his fight against the Duke of Bavaria, and by extension against his paternal uncle, Conrad III. This alliance between a major Hohenstaufen prince and a wealth had caused 19th century historians serious headaches. The neat storyline had always been that Hohenstaufen and Welf have been fighting tooth and nail over the imperial throne for a century, breaking Germany into a thousand pieces in the process. A Gelf is a Gelf and a Ghibelline is a Ghibelline. Reality, it turns out, was a lot more complex than that. We tend to reflexively regard the male line as the dominant driver of family allegiances in the Middle Ages. We look at the great families, the Plantagenets, the Capetians, the Valois, the Visconti or the Pias, these are inevitably defined in the male line. But many of these family groupings were named by later historians who wrote their histories in a period when paternalistic perspectives were dominant. And that goes in particular for the Hohenstaufen. As I mentioned before, contemporaries rarely refer to them by their ancestral castle. They were more often called Weiblinger, after the matriarch Agnes of Weiblingen, the daughter of Emperor Henry IV and the mother of Conrad III and 19 others. She was of so much more illustrious blood than the modest Stauffer lords. Hence, that is where they looked for their ancestry. Preferring the maternal line is not an exception for the Hohenstaufen alone. We go back further, the first of the salient rulers mostly refer to their descendants from Gertrude, the wife of Conrad II and the mother of Henry III, who could trace her lineage to Charlemagne, rather than their descent from the more nouveau riche Ottonians. Hence, when it came to family loyalties, young Frederick is likely to have put as much weight on his ties to the incredibly ancient Welf family than to his relationship with his uncle, the king. 
what is likely to have tipped the balance was that Conrad gave huge preference to his half-brothers, the Barbenbergers. They were given the greatest honours, the Duchy of Bavaria, the County of Palatinate on the Rhine, and a set of bishoprics. The Barbenberger influence also affected foreign policy towards Poland and Hungary, with sometimes negative implications for the authority of the crown. The king's nephew, young Frederick, was not singled out for any preferential treatment. I guess you have by now figured out who this Frederick is. Let me give you a clue. He's ginger, and he has a luxurious beard. Yes, he is the man who would become known as Frederick Barbarossa, the best-known figure of the German Middle Ages. For now, what we need to know is that, in this frail kingdom of Conrad III, not even his nephew Barbarossa is wholeheartedly on the king's side. To complete the rundown of feuds, Barbarossa manages to create his own fight with the Duke Conrad of Zeringen. The Zeringer, nominal duke of what is today Baden and German-speaking Switzerland, had been staunch supporters of King Conrad. Up till now. Barbarossa manages to break that alliance, as he attacked them and even took their castle of Zeringen. The ruins still stand above the city of Freiburg. Not that Conrad had enough trouble already. And then, the empire is not just Germany, but there's also Burgundy and the Kingdom of Italy. In Burgundy, the word of Conrad counted for even less. He had appointed the lords of the mighty castle and tourist trap extraordinaire of Le Beau to be counts of Provence. The counts of Barcelona disagreed with the king of the Romans and, well, they won. The counts of Le Beau were beaten and Provence drifted even further out of the empire. In Italy, war was virtually permanent. The emerging city-states were constantly at each other's throat. Pisa versus Lucca, Florence versus Siena, Verona versus Padua, Vicenza versus Treviso, Milan versus Cremona, everyone against Little Crema, and then greater campaigns in various alliances and iterations. What made them so persistent was down to the use of mercenaries. Mercenaries have the unpleasant habit of devastating the countryside when not gainfully employed. If they happened to be close by, the city fathers were given the choice between sending them off to herd these despicable Pisans, Lucans, Florentines, Padrons, whoever they just had beef with, or leaving them unpaid, roaming their own countryside. If Conrad's rule was indeed weak, much weaker than, say, Lothar III, it was not all his fault. He was a brave fighter and a reasonable military tactician. His real problem was twofold. On the one hand, the resources from his own and the crown lands were only a fraction of what Lothar III had at his disposal. That reduced his ability to subdue any opposition by force. On the other hand, he struggled to project much soft power. His authority had begun to suffer as he had not yet achieved an imperial coronation or any equivalent increase in status. Conrad did work hard on the resource issue. He aggressively expanded the royal domain that had seen many properties dissipating into the hands of the princes. He re-established the imperial chancery that had gone into disuse under Lothar III. The chancellors would review the ancient charters to chase up royal rights and privileges that had fallen into disuse. And thanks to a lucky inheritance, he added an area in northern Bavaria on the border to Bohemia into the family fortune. And finally, Conrad supported the growth of cities. 
most prominently Nuremberg, which became his favorite residence. Cities often accepted financial obligations in exchange for trading privileges, the right to build bridges, establishing a mint, or others. In the long run, the city's contributions would become a key source of funds for the royal purse. Conrad also tried to expand his clout through a proactive marriage policy. An advantage of having 20 siblings by the same mother meant Conrad could spread his family wide. One sister to the Duke of Poland, one to the King of Hungary, and another to the Duke of Upper Lothringia. His greatest coup on the marriage front was negotiating the engagement of his sister-in-law, Bertha, to the youngest of the four sons of Emperor John II Komnenos, the ruler of Byzantium. Note that in the wake of the First Crusade, Byzantium had experienced a genuine renaissance in its fortunes. The emperors Alexios and John II were extremely competent rulers who had been able to regain land along what is now the Turkish coast and even establish strong positions on the Anatolian plateau. Not that Byzantium was back to its heydays in the 10th century, but they were definitely back in business. If you want more detail, the history of Byzantium's episodes 224 and following are an excellent way to see the story from a Byzantine perspective. John II Komnenos died unexpectedly in 1143, and even more unexpectedly, his youngest son, Manuel, assumed the throne after his oldest brothers had died. Manuel was suddenly emperor, and a marriage to just a sister-in-law of the King of the Romans would have been below him. The status gap is bridged when Conrad formally adopts Bertha as his daughter. And sometime later, the two sides agree a formal alliance that may or may not have included an agreement to throw in southern Italy as Bertha's dowry. We'll probably talk about that in a bit more detail in a few episodes. Thanks to these efforts, his resources were improving steadily, but still far too slowly. Conrad needs a boost to both his real power and his soft power, and he needs it now. There were a couple of options for that. The first one is something Conrad himself had tried 15 years earlier, establishing royal authority in the rich lands of Italy, in particular taking possession of the lands of Matilda of Tuscany. Number two was the most tried and tested one, travelling to Rome for an imperial coronation. And by now, there is a third one, one that's still comparatively new, and that is the support of the Latin kingdoms in the Holy Land. And as we will find out later, there's actually a fourth option for the Hohenstaufen to increase their tangible and soft power, which at this point would have been seen as so completely outlandish. But it will be the one the later emperors of the House of Hohenstaufen will base their policy on. When Conrad III looked at his options in 1144, neither looked particularly promising. The Lands of Matilda option was a bit of a red herring as he had found out during his earlier attempts in the 1130s. The situation in Tuscany was extremely complex, with cities and major lords being somewhere between unreliable and outright hostile. In reality, the hope for benefits of ownership did not justify the expenditure to establish a regime in Tuscany. And let's not forget, the lands of Matilda were technically the inheritance of Henry the Lion, and this young Duke of Saxony was already chafing against the agreement whereby his mother had given up the Duchy of Bavaria on his behalf, a mother who, by the way, is now dead. 
a trip to Rome was even less promising. Pope Innocent II had been a supporter of Conrad's and had helped him on the throne. But by 1144 he was no longer that useful, in part because he was dead, but more importantly because he managed to have himself beaten and captured by Roger of Sicily almost immediately after his ultimate entrance into Rome. In the subsequent peace treaty, Innocent II had recognized all of Roger's royal titles and gave up his claims to Capua. That meant Roger's territory stretched now all the way to the Roman Campania. And on top of that, the citizens of Rome had finally chucked out Innocent II's successor, Pope Lucius II, and created their own commune, led by a newly established senate. And fun fact, that commune was led by Giordano Pierleoni, the brother of the Pope Anaclet II, who had been ousted by Innocent II. So to go down to Rome for a coronation, even if Conrad would have been comfortable leaving the fragile situation in Germany, was a massive challenge. He could not bring a real army, which meant Roger II could prevent a coronation if he wanted to, and as the relationship was less than cordial, he had good reason to do so. And even if Roger could be placated, there were still the citizens of Rome who would need to be subdued. Again, that was something even his predecessor Lothar III had shied away from at his last journey, despite having much larger forces. So, Rome is a no-go. In the middle of this thought process, news arrived that the crusader state of Edessa had fallen to the Muslim emir of Mosul. The fall of this crusader state had come as a shock to the West. Since the conquest of Jerusalem in 1099, news from Outremer had generally been positive. The Crusaders had been able to extend their territory bit by bit, thanks to knights coming over for a gap year of fighting and praying. The great military orders of the Templars and Hospitaliers had prospered and turned into some sort of standing army. Italian maritime republics provided naval support, helping acquiring port cities. The situation was seen as stable, and so most crusading efforts were now directed to the Spanish Reconquista. But the situation on the ground was somewhat different. There were four crusader states stretching along the coast of the Levant. The Kingdom of Jerusalem occupied roughly what is today Israel. The county of Tripoli stretched out north from there, roughly where Lebanon and the coast of Syria are today. Further north was the Principality of Antioch, in what is today southern Turkey, and then even further now northeast away from the coast lies the county of Edessa, in what is now today the border area between Turkey and Syria, close to the famous city of Aleppo. These two outposts, Edessa and Antioch, were a long way from Jerusalem. Moreover, they were not only contested by the Muslims, but also by the Byzantines. Both Antioch and Edessa had been part of the Byzantine Empire before the Battle of Manzikart in 1072. When the First Crusade travelled through Constantinople, the Crusaders had sworn to return all conquests inside the pre-Manzikart borders back to the Vasilev. Well, that never happened. Instead, Antioch and Edessa became lordships of Norman rulers, another set of Audevilles, close relatives of Roger II of Sicily. This geographical and political fragility meant the fall of Edessa had always been a highly probable event. It could maybe have been avoided if the prince had become a vassal of the Byzantine emperor, as was promised just a few years earlier. But he did not. In 1144, Edessa stood pretty much alone. 
and the Count and his army were out fighting elsewhere, the Emir of Mosul, Zengi, attacked. He entered the city after a very brief siege. Relief from Jerusalem and the returning Count arrived too late. Zengi had taken full control and all the Latin Christians in the city had been massacred. The Count recaptured the city briefly the following year after Zengi had died at home. But Zengi's son, Nur din returned, broke through the walls and then razed the city to the ground. According to the Christian chroniclers, Nur din killed the remaining Greek and Armenian male Christians and sold the women and children into slavery. Muslim sources say that the victors were magnanimous and left the population unharmed. Whoever was right, Edessa, one of the jewels of the Byzantine Empire, site of the grave of the Apostle Thomas, and home of the very first Greek icon, the Mandelion, never recovered. In the aftermath, the Crusader states were in shock. It became clear that the drip-drip of new fighters was not enough to regain Edessa and to secure the whole of Utremer. The Queen of Jerusalem, Melisande, sent envoys to Pope Eugenius III, successor to the luckless Lucius II, begging for help. Help not just in form of a few knights, but help on the scale of the First Crusade. We are now so used to numbering crusades that we forget that nobody in 1144 thought that another crusade would ever be needed. We captured Jerusalem and that was that. But after the fall of Edessa, the understanding sinks in that Jerusalem is inherently fragile and that a cycle of crusades will ultimately be necessary. Pope Eugenius was keen to help, if alone to increase his own standing. Like Urban II in 1095, he was not in control of the city of Rome, and he needed a boost. But the question was, who should he ask to go? Roderick II of Sicily would be the natural candidate. The Norman king had an army, and by now also a navy. He had experience and a great track record in fighting the Muslims, first in Sicily and by now in North Africa. And the Prince of Antioch was his cousin. But as far as the Pope was concerned, Roger was a most unreliable customer. The Sicilian was not even willing to get the Pope installed in Rome. And the last thing the papacy wanted was for the Normans to take control of the Crusaders, making them the masters of the Mediterranean, eclipsing the Byzantines. The Spanish kingdoms were next on the list, but the Reconquista had recently begun to stall. The previous rulers of Muslim Spain and Morocco had just been replaced by a much fiercer and military more capable dynasty, the Almohads. So they had their hands full. That brings you to the long-term ally of the main crusader states, King Louis VII of France. Now, For our British listeners, Louis VII is the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine, he is the man she will ultimately leave because of his unnatural proclivity to pray non-stop and instead marry King Henry II of England, creating the Angevin Empire and the two sets of Hundred Years' War. Going on crusade, therefore, was right up Louis VII's street. But his subjects were a lot less enthusiastic. At the first attempt to drum up some crusader spirit, only a handful of bishops indicated willingness to go. And it is in this situation that the true leader of Europe in this period enters the stage. Our old friend, Bernard of Clairvaux, silver-tongued preacher and allegorical bride of Christ. As I said before, 
I find it very difficult to get my head around the level of influence this man had at the time. But the facts speak for themselves. When Louis VII, most pious king, could not make a single one of his great vassals to sign up, St. Bernard brought them all on board. He preached at a meeting in Vézelay in March 1146 that ended with all the men crying out, Give us crosses! Give us crosses! Quickly all the material to sew on crosses had been exhausted and St. Bernard threw off his outer garments to be turned into even more crosses. Bernard wrote back to Pope Eugenius III, You ordered, I obeyed. I opened my mouth, I spoke, and at once the crusaders have multiplied to infinity. Villages and towns are now deserted. You will scarcely find a man to seven women. Everywhere you see widows whose husbands are still alive. As I said, I do not get it. As with the first crusade, the mass hysteria could not be contained in France. Within weeks it reached the cities of the Rhine Valley, and a fanatical Cistercian by the name of Rudolf began inspiring massacres of Jews. This is when Bernard of Clairvaux does something useful for a change. He races down to Cologne and shuts down the pogrom. As he moves across the border, he goes on preaching the crusade in the German lands. In November 1146, he finally meets Conrad in Frankfurt and asks him to join the crusade, but Conrad does not commit. Bernard then decides to preach a bit more in the southwest, in Freiburg, in Basel, in Schaffhausen and Constance. Enthusiastic crowds follow every word, though he has to use an interpreter. At Christmas 1146, Bernard meets up with Conrad again, this time in Speyer. He berates him to take the cross, telling the king that Christ will ask him at the final judgment, Man, what ought I have done for you that I have not done? listing all the benefits he accrued to him, the crown, the honours, his health, and his strength in battle. And what have you used these for? Nobody has ever spoken to Conrad like that, and stunned, he gives in and takes a cross. Yeah, sure. All that was needed was a bit of talking to by a saintly monk, and hey presto, the king goes off on crusade. Most modern historians regard this whole set of events as an elaborate stage show. Conrad was very keen to go. As I said some ten minutes ago, he really needed something to boost his authority. A crusade was like manna from heaven for our starving king. The reason he could not jump right in was simple. If he would take his household troops down to Jerusalem, his enemies would wipe out what was left of royal power behind his back. And he was actually in the middle of a war with Poland and with Hungary. No, the only way he could go on crusade was if all his enemies came along. And that is why Bernard of Clairvaux did preach in the beautiful towns of southern Swabia. He was there to meet up with Ralph VI and Frederick Barbarossa. He knew that convincing them was a precondition for Conrad to join. We do not know what Bernard offered, but the two princes took the cross. If these two came along, then Conrad's next worry were the Saxon lords in particular Henry the Lion. And even for that, Bernard found a solution. Henry did not want to go to Jerusalem, at least not in an army under the command of Conrad. Sensing Conrad was under pressure, he also formally declared his renunciation of the Duchy of Bavaria null and void. Bernard contained the problem by ensuring that a formal decision on Bavaria would be taken after the king's return from Jerusalem, 
and, to pass the time, Henry should undertake a crusade against the Slavs in the north. Bernard quickly procured a papal bull from Pope Eugenius, and hey presto, the Baltic Crusades are underway. It is not clear how Bernard managed to extract a bull out of Pope Eugenius, because he was not best pleased with the saints' activities in Germany. Eugenius was still sitting outside the walls of Rome when now a certain Arnold of Brescia was holding court. Eugenius wanted Conrad to come down to Rome and sort it out, not to go on crusade. But Bernard says he was possessed by the Holy Spirit and got carried away in his sermon. And so, like any king, emperor, and as we now see pope, he had to bend to the will of the ascetic abbot of Clairvaux. There's an interesting theory about why Bernard of Clairvaux put so much effort into getting Conrad to come on crusade. He may have been influenced by the so-called Sibylline Oracles, a weird mishmash of Greek, Roman, Gnostic, Jewish and Christian beliefs and prophecies compiled sometimes in the 6th or 7th century. One of the verses refer to a C. Rex Romanorum who would conquer the whole world, drive the heathens back into their box and bring about universal worship of the cross. For Bernard, C must stand for Conrad, obviously not for Constantine. As I said, I do not get why he was so influential. Guy's mad. These are unusual times when mad ideas flourish. Our otherwise sober chronicler Otto of Freising thinks the whole crusade is unnecessary, as Prester John, a Christian ruler in India and Persia, was already on his way to relieve the Holy Land. Otto is the first to ever mention Prester John. Where he got his information from is unclear. One can only assume he had done his own research. Despite his half-brother's objections, in May 1147, Conrad, the weakest king of the Romans to date, goes off on his great campaign that is supposed to bring him glory and finally control over his realm. He leads one of the largest armies the medieval empire has ever fielded. Stephen Runciman estimates it to be 20,000 men, though it could have easily been tripled that, adding all the civilian hangers-on. Contemporary chroniclers talk about a mind-boggling number of 900,000. Many of his great magnates are with him, most prominently Ralph VI, young Frederick Barbarossa, after his father's death now Duke of Swabia, Henry Azomigot, the Duke of Bavaria, the Duke of Bohemia and even the Duke of Poland. Many a bishop is with him, including now his half-brother Otto of Freising. The route they envisaged led through Hungary down to Constantinople. From there, Conrad plans to cross the Anatolian plateau and get down to the Levant via the Cilician gates. They set off three weeks before King Louis VII of France, hoping to cover themselves in glory before the other crusaders arrive. Next week, we will see how Conrad and his mighty army will fare as they retrace the steps of the First Crusade. I hope you will join us. And in the meantime, should you feel like supporting the show and get hold of these bonus episodes, sign up on Patreon. The links are in the show notes or on my website at historyofthegermans.com. <laughs>